Welcome to the WCAPS 5 podcast series. WCAPS is an online community dedicated to strengthening the leadership and professional development of women of color, specializing in the fields of peace, security, conflict transformation, and foreign policy. Join us as we unpack their valuable perspectives, learn from their strategies, and grow together. Vive. Vision. Impact. Voice. Engagement. Hi, welcome everybody to another episode of the Vibe podcast by WCAPS, Women of Color for Advancing Peace and Security. My name is Kara Hernandez, and I am the WCAPS Advisory Board member, and I chair the Illicit Trafficking Working Group. I'm actually really excited today because I get to sit down with Makita Easter and the arts reporter for the Los Angeles Times. Her recent focus is on reporting on art and identity and documenting the devastating impact of the pandemic and our current administration's failing to protect artists, storytellers, and journalists. Hi, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I just wanted to kind of jump off and get to a little bit of the nitty gritty about your perspective about how journalism has actually been affected by the pandemic and also specifically what you write on the intersections between the fight for racial justice and kind of the failings of Trump administration. So it's a lot at once, but I do think that is the reality of what's happening in journalism is all of these things are being compounded. And I would love to get your perspective and hear what you have to say on the topic. Yeah, in terms of how the pandemic has impacted journalism, it's been really devastating. I mean, you know, even one to two months in into the pandemic in May, we're seeing, I was seeing a lot of people already getting laid off. Organizations, media outlets are really struggling to, to make money right now. And with my own organization, we were partially furloughed over the summer. A lot of the advertisers of the paper kind of dropped off because there's no events to advertise when everything is closed down. And so the LA Times is really struggling to bring in income. Luckily, we're unionized, which is a very recent thing. And so we worked with the union to come up with a, a solution that kind of helped everyone versus you know lots of people getting laid off. And so we were partially furloughed and now we're back to full time. But it's been a really, really difficult time for journalism. Um, a lot of outlets, particularly local news, regional news, they're really struggling. A lot of layoffs, a lot of like devastation. So it's, it's been really, really scary to see because journalism is so important, especially right now with the triple impact of the pandemic, the uprisings, and now the election. We need journalists more than ever. But yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm really concerned. And it's one of those things where it is such a... Um... I think people really default having good journalism in the world because that's how they've kind of seen the world for the past however many decades. But it's so interesting to hear your perspective of how it's teetering right now and how not only are these kind of global forces out of people's control in the pandemic, but also how governments are also really key in protecting the, this sector. With regards to more of... I, I don't want to say because, you know, I think the fight for racial justice has has always been going for centuries. And it's not right. like kind of when people say that rhetoric of the current fight for social justice. I was like, we've, we've been here. People have been fighting for their lives this entire time. Um, Black folks have been at the center of this in the entire U.S. history. And so I really hate that narrative. But I would really like to hear from you more of a 
kind of a more recent description of how you think journalism and art as a whole has kind of been able to shape the social movement of Black Lives Matter, because we have seen a resurgence in news stories and just organizations actually talking about it, companies actually talking about it. Whether that has moved to action just yet, I'm not sure, but I would love to get your perspective on how art shapes the social movement. Yeah, I'll answer the question, I guess, in two separate parts because I, there's so much to say. I think in terms of how journalism has impacted the Black Lives Matter movement, I actually think of it reversed in a way. The Black Lives Matter movement impacting journalism itself. We saw that, we saw that this summer um, in my own newsroom at the Los Angeles Times. We had kind of I don't know if you want to call it like an uprising within the newsroom or like a racial reckoning within our newsroom because of these protests going on across the country. And it kind of, it got kicked off with, we have a diversity Slack channel and you know, these, it's all of this has actually been covered. So I feel comfortable talking about it, but there were questions around the way that the newspaper was covering some of the protesters and, and the focus on, on looting in, in particular and, that turned into like a larger discussion and critique of how the paper has covered Black communities since the inception of the paper, which was over 100 years ago. That turned into this big kind of blowout over how Black journalists were being treated in the newsroom itself. And so this diversity Slack channel, I think it started there maybe like maybe around 300 people on the channel. And now it's like over 500. And it's turned into for months now this like ongoing, evolving conversation. Our conversations in June led to the creation of, we have a Black caucus now, and I'm part of it. And we, um, because of, you know, our critiques and our, like, people sharing their pain about how they've been treated in the newsroom and, like, the impact of how, like, you know, racist coverage of Black communities, how that impacts the community itself, we um, launched a campaign called, um, it was hashtag Black at LAT, on Twitter. And so we um, pulled together some, some testimonies from former Black staff and used that to share like what it's like being a Black person in the newsroom. We also released like a list of demands, which included hiring more Black people, you know, creating a pipeline for people of color in the newsroom to rise to the masthead and senior leadership positions. We called for an, a public apology, which actually just came out, I think about two weeks ago, and the, the apology was from the editorial board and they apologized for, so after we did this, the Latino caucus formed, they also demanded an apology. And so we kind of banded together and it came out, uh, the paper came out with this story called Our Reckoning with Racism. And it's this long piece about how from the beginning of the LA Times, how communities of color have been covered. And yeah, and then it, there were also like stories from Black and Latino and Asian journalists about their experiences being in the newsroom. So that's kind of, when I hear your question, I, I think more about like how this movement has like trickled down into our newsroom. And I know that's played out across like the New York Times, the Washington Post, like local regional newspapers. A lot of them right now are having these really tough conversations about how they've treated Black people and other people of color. And it's, I think the jury is out. What will, what will come of this? Because something I learned um, with our own reckoning was that we had the same thing happen in 1992 with the LA riots. A lot of the Black journalists had kind of the same complaints. And so it was very sad to me personally to see that, you know, almost 30 years later, 
paper hadn't really made the progress that it promised. And so that's why I am hopeful, but I, I'd like to see, you know, more action before, before saying that, you know, our actions have caused like the, ch- the change that's really needed. So yeah, hopefully that, that partially answers your question about Black Lives Matter and journalism. So in regards to art and the Black Lives Matter movement, they kind of go hand in hand. They've gone hand in hand from the beginning. The co-founder of Black Lives Matter, I I don't think a lot of people know this, but the co-founder, Patrice Cullors, is an artist herself. She's a performance artist. And a lot of her work, which has been shown, she's performed in museums and other like art spaces around LA and across the nation, really kind of confronts these issues of mental health and like mass incarceration. Same issues that like, are central to the platform of the Black Lives Matter network. So that's one thing. I think art is so integral to the social movement. It's been integral to like so many movements throughout history, like the Black Panthers, the Chicano Moratorium in LA. Um, Art is what I think, this is my personal opinion, but I think art is what normalizes these concepts. I just think of like the evolution of Black Lives Matter itself, how maybe four or five years ago, it was like a controversial thing to say um, or to have displayed um, in your window. And now four years later, I walk around my neighborhood, which is majority white, and I see so many Black Lives Matter signs. And that has to do with art because, you know, graphic design, murals, Instagram, all types of of things are considered art across the nation. Cities are kind of painting Black Lives Matter on their streets. Yeah, I think. And then, you know, with George Floyd, for instance, um, I actually did a story on on the viral art around these really tragic police killings. Um, There was an artist in Minneapolis. He was a graphic designer. He was kind of one of the first people to know about this tragedy of George Floyd and he did, you know, he kind of went into his own toolbox and created this graphic. And um, this was before George Floyd made national news and he created it, posted it. It went viral. People started sharing it. There's other been other art tributes to Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, um, and these other victims. And there's a lot to be said about the impact of social media on, on the movement itself. But being able to uplift these, these people who've, who've died so sadly and, and so brutally through art, which is beautiful, has been um, so impactful to spread the message far and wide. And I think, I think art is part of the reason why, why it's like, it's normal now. It's just like, people don't think twice about saying Black Lives Matter, whereas like years ago, it was a totally different story. I just want to thank you, because I think the way you framed that, especially in the beginning, talking about Black Lives Matter's impact on your work and your work in journalism. I did see the article about that from the LA Times. I didn't want to bring it up. So I'm glad that you're able to, to really shed even more light on that. As, as you call it, the reckoning that LA Times, one of the things that I always see a lot is the, the words that we use. And I have done a couple of workshops, very preliminary, about how to like decolonize your language, how to really reimagine the words that you're using and make sure that you're not following the framework, especially when you get into like policy work where we're used to kind of using passive phrases. So we are not directly implicating certain people or there's a a sort of framework of acceptable words that you can use in policy papers and really trying to say, you know, if 
this person is the aggressor, you need to name it and shame it. I think that whole concept is also really important to talk about how it plays on journalism and, you know, on social media, but also in newsrooms, it's really heartening to see that people are, are saying, look at this headline. What is the problem with it? Let's discuss it. I think those things are really powerful to normalizing, like you were saying. You know, I think with that, when you were talking about how you were saying this also happened in the 90s, it really reminds me of this piece. It was called like Diversity as a Second Job. And I believe it was Chris Kindred who wrote this. It came out a long time ago, maybe two years. And I think about it so often. And he was kind of talking about the, the tragedy of the second job as diversity of, you know, having a pipeline to help people of color, to help black folks, to, in, in his case, uh, really propel through journalism is we think that we're going to be, you know, that our mentors were still kind of breaking down the same walls that they are. And so in reality, the necessity never ends. So this pipeline, these diversity shifts, historically has, there's never been an end to it. You've always kind of needed to maintain it. And the same thing with democracy, you need to kind of, I think this is a reminder to folks, oh, you need to remain, you know, maintain democracy for it to be working well. We also need to do the same thing at your institution to make sure that if you have a push for diversity, you have a push for social and racial justice, that you're maintaining it and you're putting money towards it and you're putting time towards it and effort and intentions towards it. So it's really great to hear that. And I was, and I think part of it is, you know, white white supremacism is just so easily flips in. (laughs) It's so easily to fall into that because it is, you know, the prevalent culture, whether people say it or, or don't say it in the United States of how, you know, who the police serves or what is deemed correct because of these kind of like larger, wider institutions saying this is valuable art versus this is not valuable art. I would love to hear if what your experience is with kind of white supremacy impacting the art world, whether that be through kind of outright supremacy of, you know, more aggressive, you know, racial profiling and things like that, or if it's something that's just institutionalized. How do you think has it affected the art world? Yeah, I mean, I think you could do a whole series on this because it's it's everywhere. Um, I mean, when you think about museums and what a museum is, there's colonialism, imperialism, taking things from people and displaying them. That's kind of, yeah, the basis of a lot of museums right there. So I think white supremacy is everywhere in the art world, whether it's a museum, a theater, a symphony, a dance organization. It's unfortunate, but <laughs> these these institutions, especially the big major ones, were founded on these principles. I think right now it's been interesting because well, a lot of my work touches the intersection of art with identity. And I talk to a lot of artists who are passionate about social justice and about creating work that is outside of what's been considered the norm. So I hear a lot from them about how they've been impacted by by white supremacy. And really, um, the Black Lives Matter movement this summer has really kind of, like I mentioned, the reckoning in journalism has caused this reckoning in the art world itself. There's an initiative called We See You White American Theater that was signed by over, I want to say like over 300 theater artists. And so this, this project, it kind of, it's a statement and it's a list of demands to make theater more equitable 
And so they talk about demanding for not tokenizing artists of color, not, you know, in your lineup of, of your shows for the season, do you just have like one black artist and one Asian artist? And you say, that's okay. That's not okay. Is what they're saying. Like diversifying leadership, kind of changing the structure of gatekeeping, like who gets to put their art on your stage and who makes those decisions. It's, you know, it's doing anti-racist training and the institution itself, because a lot of people are just very ignorant. Their list, they had, I mean, I don't know how many pages this was, but you could read it for a good, like, 15 minutes of how many demands they had. But this, this was, I saw this play out also in museums, in the dance world. We can talk about, when you talk about white supremacy, you can talk about how ballet is seen as the foundation of all dance technique. And ballet is Eurocentric. Um, and that's the, that's the art form or the, the technique in dance that's taught in schools is if you don't have a mastery of ballet, like you can't perform with these companies. And it's sidelining other forms of dance um, that are not white. Yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's hard to kind of like, it's such a broad question and it impacts so many different, um, it, it impacts artists and institutions in so many different ways. It's culturally specific institutions. Um, so yeah, culturally specific institutions, it's them not getting the same opportunities for funding as a white institution. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard because, you know, arts have been this way. You can also look at like who gets to go to a theater. In my experience covering the arts, when I go to a show that's at the big institution in town, I'm usually one of very, very few Black faces in the crowd. I've also had experiences where I felt physically really uncomfortable because I could tell people, you know, the crowd is mostly older and white. And they're looking at me like, what are you doing in here? And I feel that and I'm just, I'm like, I don't want to even see this show because I just want to get out of here. And I think, you know, if I'm a journalist doing this work, how many other people have been excluded from the art world itself because they don't get access? They don't, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot. But I do think this moment in time, there's been, yeah, this reckoning, as I said. So jury's out how things will change, but I know, and a lot of artists have been talking about this, there needs to be so much change on every single level of, of what it is to be an artist or an art institution. And it's so interesting that you say that, not only of who has ac- who is access to perform art, to show their art, who's getting funded to create art, but also who's able to experience it. Because I think that is something that is often not in the narrative as much. And how interesting, because I I work with a a Native-led consulting firm, and a lot of times we work with folks who are trying to work with tribal leaders, and there's a whole history about kind of why conservation at large and national parks and national monuments try to specifically dissuade Black and Native Americans from going to these parks and accessing them. And I think it's, and obviously it's the same way with theaters and I think people don't realize the long-lasting impacts of that. And it could be something that is just a culture. It could be something that is also interesting enough. A lot of work that's being done is on analytics of, you know, advertisement and what you're getting access to. And it's interesting to see how the racism is actually built into people's marketing of arts and people's marketing of different exhibits and things like that. And I do think it's pervasive in every level. Like I said, like that's why it's so easy for people to kind of slip back into this white supremacy fr- kind of framework. That's what we're used to. That's what is the default. 
And it is hard and, you know, it is a challenging, and I know it's a, a hard thing to talk about this, but I think the points that you brought up are things that people not only in WCAPS will recognize, but also people who are outside of WCAPS who haven't experienced the things that you've mentioned will hopefully will take with a grain of salt and be able to actually make action into these things. I think that's what's so important about it. And as you know, WCAPS audience is largely composed of folks and policy-making institutions or trying to influence them in some ways. And I just want to ask you, kind of in your experience and, and the purview of kind of this post-reckoning at the LA Times, but also in your larger experience before you were a journalist, what are some policy do you think that people on an institution level or inside their institutions could promote in their work to kind of promote this idea of art and policy? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that art arts funding is so crucial. You know, any issue that you care about, any policy issue, whether it's food justice or immigration or mass incarceration or racial inequality, all of that is addressed with art in some way. And a lot of the art that I cover with my job is kind of tackling these issues. And I think that this art, it also helps people understand what the issue is. Whereas like, you know, reading a policy brief or even an article can, I don't know, sometimes I don't think people really connect with that, but art is so, I don't know, it just taps into that that human emotion and connection that I think art really makes a difference in the things that that we're passionate about. I, I think about the story that I did last year on uh, Tom Kiefer, a photographer. He was working at a border control station in Arizona as a janitor. And when migrants crossed, they, all of their belongings were thrown away. And he started just digging through the trash and taking things out that were thrown away from people and then taking them to his home and then later photog- uh, photographing them. And so he has at his home, like this mountain of a hundred thousand objects, but the way he's photographed them. So like he has a photo of like all these different types of, all these different types of medicine um, that were taken from people, like love letters that were taken, shoes, like baby shoes, water bottles, like all these things. I don't know. It just, it's photography, but it, it just, it makes you connect with, these are human beings who are crossing the border and like these pieces of their lives were just tossed out into the trash. I think art, art is the connection that maybe helps policy, like I keep saying connection, but helps policy connect with with everyday people. And so I think that's why it's so crucial to to fund for arts funding to be available. I think of COVID and and how many places are just struggling to survive. How many places, how many museums, like small museums, galleries, arts, people who have like underground arts collectives, like rehearsal spaces, how many of those places have already closed because they they don't have any funding, they have no way to pay their rent. How many places are on the verge of closing, which even I'm talking about like more local spots, but even the big places that you wouldn't think, they ha- they haven't been able to find funding. There's just not really government funding available to them. And there is some, but just it's not enough. I think, you know, if we care about these issues, we have to fund arts because arts is so crucial to to the world that we live in. I just like I personally can't imagine a world without art. It's just everywhere in our lives, whether you know, even if you're not into going to the museum or you're not someone who like goes to a dance show, you still like you interact with art every day, everywhere. Also arts education. It's like, you know, one of the first things that gets cut. And yeah, I mean, 
yeah, I just, I, I can't say enough, like, how important it is for there to be, like, arts available, freely available to everyone. Um, so that's why I hope that answers your question. I just, just emphasize, I just wanted to emphasize, like, arts funding is so needed right now. And that's kind of what I've been hearing from the people I've been talking to through this pandemic. And I do think people, especially if you work in, like, these kind of, like, hard policy sectors, are always kind of have this idea of, well, what can I do? And I'm like, well, the pandemic, the Trump administration has broadened all of our lanes to fit into these things that we care about and that we need. And it's one of those things that are just so, so simple to me in the way I think. But, you know, obviously it's difficult and you have to have conversations with your funders. But if you're a nonprofit, it's very easy to say, hi, we're not doing traveling. Can we invest that into our communication strategy by hiring artists? to do our, all of our digital campaigns because everything's going digital. There's no reason to kind of have like the sad articles or the sad things coming out without anything because really at the end of the day, I think this idea that art and design isn't effective or efficient is what I think people are really missing out. You know, having a, a poorly laid out article or policy paper in Times New Roman font will not do the same thing as if you had incorporated a more artistic flair, whether that be through the actual formatting of it, whether that be through graphic design or like you were saying, photos. I do think this idea of, I think it's great to uphold art can just be art and that is all it's doing and it is beautiful and useful for the person creating it and for some people witnessing it. But it also, for policymakers, it's very useful in what you're trying to achieve in advocacy goals or influencing things or um, spreading awareness or communication or anything. And I do think arts funding is part of that. And what are you doing with these kind of earmarked funds, especially during the pandemic, it's even more, I feel like easier to, to be able to really think about that and put your priorities and asking your institution, well, why don't you do this? Because even at things like the World Bank, for example, they host artists to come and show their art inside the bank. Well, they could still be giving money to these artists and allowing them the opportunity to share this art in different, digital, different ways. And I do think it's so easy just to cut it, to say, well, we can't have anybody come in person, so there's no reason to do the art week this week. And it's kind of this idea of what are we missing? What are we losing? Because we're, we're not funding them and we're not giving people the proper payment as well because I do think that's all another part of the conversation is paying people fairly for the art that they are actually creating but I know I kind of talked a little bit I was like oh but also your previous experience but I didn't ask you yet what I would love to hear a little bit about your background of how you got started in journalism and where your perspective is coming from and within that do you have tips for other women of color who are kind of interested in either bridging the gap between art and policy or some struggles that you face that you think that you could help other women who are listening, whether that just be identify or hopefully sidestep some mishaps that might've happened along the way. Yeah. So I, I mean, I had a pretty non-traditional path into journalism. I studied, my major was science, technology, and international affairs at Georgetown University in DC. And I thought I'd be working like at an NGO or I was looking into the foreign service for a while but when I graduated, I didn't have a job. And so I moved back home to Houston and just started the job search process and landed at a nonprofit doing grant writing. And so it's funny because in college, I was like, I'm overwriting. Like, I never want to write again. Like, I'm tired of doing these, all these essays and all this stuff. 
And so my first job was grant writing and I realized that I, I did like writing. It was still like hard at times, but I still liked writing. I didn't like grant writing full time. It just got really boring. And so I found another job. And so I worked as a science writer at a university supercomputing center. And I really liked that job because I, I wrote about it, like all the research that went on on our supercomputers, which was touched like chemistry, physics, like aerospace, all, all types of research. But I also then realized that I wanted to write about more things. And so one of the perks of working for university is that you can take one free class a semester. So I enrolled in a master's journalism class for fun. And that led to me writing all these other types of stories. I grew up playing in the orchestra and dancing, and I still like take dance today. Not so much during the pandemic, but yeah, I still dance and perform. And so I loved like doing these arts and culture stories. So long story short, I applied to a fellowship at the LA Times. And I'd also decided to go to grad school full-time for journalism. But then like a couple weeks into the, the program, I I learned that I got into the I got into the fellowship at the LA Times. So I left that after a month or so and moved to LA. And I did this fellowship, which turned into my job today, which is covering covering the arts. And yeah, it's been it's been really interesting. I think that my perspective, because I a lot of people who are in the newsroom are people who have dreamed of being in a newsroom since they were young and like have worked their way in college, worked for the college newspaper, did a bunch of internships and then landed into the newsroom. Whereas I just kind of like bounced around and somehow ended up there. So I feel sometimes that my perspective is a little bit like, well, why do we have to do it this way? You know, I'm kind of always like questioning things. And something that I've been thinking a lot about recently is just how to reach more, a more diverse audience. Because when you think of a newspaper and who reads a newspaper, the truth is, is it's a lot of older white people. And I always hope my work kind of expands, appeals. I want to appeal to older white people too, but I, I hope my work really appeals to young people, marginalized communities who haven't seen themselves reflected in the newspaper or have felt that like, I can't read this newspaper. It's too like boring, I guess, (laughs) which is like a really harsh way of saying that. But I I, I just, yeah, I've been thinking about ways to appeal to people who didn't think the newspaper was for them. So yeah, that's my journey. And I think the second part of your question was kind of bridging the gap between policy and art. Is that correct? Yeah, or any just any tips that you might have for folks that are listening in. Yeah. So in terms of tips for people, I would say I would say just find like think about what you like, if it's what kind of art that you like, I guess. And then do your own research into who actually created this. I think a lot of people like we enjoy art. I mentioned that everyone like engages with art every day, but like I think a lot of people enjoy art and they don't ever think about who created that or what the process was that went into making that thing. So if it's like some music that you like, is it a a painting that you have in your home or that you've seen on Instagram even? You know, is it like, I write a lot about commercial dance, which is like the dance and music videos and TVs and film, TV shows and film. And a lot of people don't ever, we see this dance like as we're, engaging with like a TV show, but we don't think about it. And so, you know, those are people who have like trained their whole life to be a background dancer, which they're so much more talented than just describing them as a background dancer. But 
that's how they're seen. So I would say my first tip is to just start thinking more deeply about where the work that you enjoy is coming from. And that will lead you like look someone up, look up an artist and read about their story. And yeah, if you're in policy and and you want to, I think like maybe want to connect with them, I think artists are so happy to to talk about their work and to know that their work is making a difference. So I I I think most people would be thrilled to hear from a, someone working in policy because a lot of these artists work interacts with policy. So I think that's my tip and hopefully that's somewhat helpful. No, I definitely think it is. And I, I agree with you. I've had a very non-traditional background just in general <laughs> from any of the places I worked. And I do think it's so important to be like, well, why can't we do it this way? And there's no reason not to, if it, you know, there's, if it works with the budget and it works with people's times and you know, I think those are the types of things that I want people to really start thinking about is how can a policy person reach out to somebody in the arts, what they can do. I, you know, open your lane a little bit uh, in order to have a, a reckoning within your own organization and, you know, their, their footprint, their footprint, uh, whether that's like their carbon footprint or their white supremacy footprint. I think those are really important conversations. And I'm so glad to have got your perspective. It's so, it really is so refreshing and also have learned so much just listening to you. So I appreciate everything, how you framed everything. You know, I would love to see more of your work. We'll definitely feature some on the WCAPS website. And also another thing, if you should reach out and uh, if you're interested in this conversation, I know, I, I don't know if you would be interested, but other people could reach out to you and have you be a paid speaker on a panel or moderate. I think those types of ideas are really important to also kind of put out there because I think you're such a welcome addition to not only WCAPS, but what we're doing on the other coast, the East Coast. To have your perspective is so in heart, just delightful to say the least. With that, I would like to thank you for your time. Hopefully we'll see more from you in the future. And if you have any last parting words, I will give it back to you. Yeah, I don't really have much else to say. I want to say thank you so much for having me. And I'm happy to answer any questions about my work or, yeah, anything else. Feel free to reach out to me via email or Twitter or anything. Um, This was, yeah, such a joy to be able to do this. Do you have any, do you have anything you want to promote? Not really. I mean, (laughs) I would say, you know, I would say just support your journalism. It doesn't have to be the LA Times or my work. Support your local journalism. We really need it right now. You know, look into if you have a publication that you really like, think about subscribing to them. Yeah, we journalism is so important right now, but it's also at this really big crisis point. And so we need more help than ever. 